So we continue through the timeline of history, and we got to the end of the uh, second century last week, and we said that by 200, the canon of the New Testament, as we know it, for the most part, as we know it, was, was fixed and known. I want to read the first two verses of Psalm 24. So our Wednesday night at this time until we finish our trip through the timeline is a little bit different. Um, we've in the past typically gone through a book of the Bible on Wednesday night, but um, we had a request um, a few months ago. We started this in January, so we're coming to the end of this. We said we were going to take a year. And now that we're kind of through the first, we're, we're through the first century, we're through the second century, we may accelerate this a little bit um, as we go to cover some important parts of history, in particular the history of the church. And so uh, as we move forward from here, we may, we may take larger chunks of history um, and not touch as maybe in depth as we could on a lot of things uh, because we could spend we could spend a lot of time going through history and not that that would be a bad thing but uh, and, and we may come back to it later on and look at some specific things but I want to read Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2 before we begin tonight the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time in your, in your story in your timeline of history. We thank you, Lord, that as the psalmist declares, the earth is the Lord and its fullness, the world and those who dwell within. Father, we thank you for this truth. Father, open our hearts and our minds, open our eyes to see and to better discern how you work in your story, how you have worked and how you are working in history and how we are a part of it. And help us, Father, to play our parts well as you are the author of this story and you are the object of all the glory that is to be seen and heard and known. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So history, as I tell my history students, history is his story. That means all the people, all the places, all the events, everything in and of history, both those things and those people who are known as well as unknown are the Lord's. So we should seek to know about them and his working in and through them in his story or in history. 
So sometimes people say, well, why are you taking the time to go through a timeline of history? It doesn't seem very spiritual. And we should just kind of pause and think about that statement. What about history? What about anything on this earth that happens, has happened, is happening, and will happen is not spiritual? The earth and its fullness belongs to the Lord. And everything in it and all the people in it. And so it, it really does behoove us to pay attention. So let's uh, just kind of go through some of these things a little quickly. So I said last week that the third century marked the beginning of a decline of Western, of the classical West. So there there. There was a revival of that in history. We may not get there. We may touch on it very, um, very briefly, but it's still hundreds of years uh, in the future based on where we are on the timeline. And what, what would that revival of classical thought, what is that called in history? Huh? The Enlightenment. Um, the Enlightenment was a revival of classical thought. And so here at the beginning of the third century, we're beginning to see a decline of Western classical uh, thought. The things that classical thought from the Greeks and the Romans gave to humanity and civilization when we think about those cultures, remember we said now, at this point in time, people in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is still in place, still ruling um, not all of the world, but the world, the cradle of civilization. Um, we, we saw where... The Romans are communicating, trading with the Chinese, or trading gifts with one another. So there is a, there's a, there's a connection, even in this, what we would call ancient history, there's a connection among the world. But now what's happening is men are beginning to look back and they're beginning to see that things aren't quite as golden or as glorious as they once were. They're beginning to sense a decline in the classical West. Um, a sign of that was that in 268, the Goths, uh, a Germanic barbarian tribe, sacked Athens, Corinth, and Sparta. What is a barbarian? Who knows the definition of a barbarian? Do any of my students remember the definition of a barbarian? Where did that name come from? Yes? Uh, is it like anyone who's not a Roman Yes, anyone not a Roman was considered a barbarian. So it's not that barbarians were um, necessarily uneducated or um, less intelligent. We kind of think of that, less civilized. Maybe in, in many ways they were if you're comparing them to Romans, Roman citizens, but in the Roman Empire, anyone who was not 
A Roman was a barbarian. It didn't matter what part of the world they came from. And so the Goths were one of many Germanic tribes that came down and ultimately um, overthrew Rome. We're not there yet. We're about 200 years from that event in history, and we will absolutely talk about that because that event in history, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, uh, had a great impact on, on the world, in particular Europe. Uh, so 268, the Goths sacked Athens, Corinth, and Sparta. Uh, this, is a, this is a sign of the weakening, the decline of the classical West. These tribes are now able to come down and wreak havoc on what was once the civilized world, the Pax Romana, and the strength of the Roman Empire is beginning to uh, wane. 269, I just threw this in because... Uh, Somebody died on February 14th. Actually, they were martyred for their faith on February 14th, 269. Anybody have a guess who that might have been? St. Valentine. Valentine. And in 465, Pope Galatius declared February 14th to be St. Valentine's Day in celebration of the saint who was martyred for his faith in Christ. So if you... Now, what... Was who can tell me what February 15th was? Lupercalia. And Lupercalia was who was one of the main characters of Lupercalia? <laughs> no! <laughs> Cupid. So our modern day celebration of Valentine's Day is more closely tied to the pagan celebration of Rome called Lupercalia. It was a celebration of love. Uh, and there is an interesting story that goes with uh, Valentine. There were two guys named Valentine who were martyred very close together geographically and in time. And some people think that it possibly they have been conflated over time, and they actually are the same person, but we don't know that. But we do know that St. Valentine, his, his bones are enshrined in a church uh, there in Asia. Um, he was a real guy. He really did die for his faith in Christ because he would, not, uh, he would not bow to the emperor and declare the emperor Lord, and so he was martyred for his faith. But the interesting story surrounding him is that when he was put in jail awaiting trial, the jailer had a daughter who was, um, who, yes, she was blind. Um, and so Valentine wanted to, uh, the jailer recognized Valentine as a person who was kind-hearted and uh, and, and he asked Valentine to help his daughter. Um, being in the condition that she was, it was difficult for her to, to learn. And, and so while Valentine was sitting in prison awaiting trial, he took this young girl under his wing and began to teach her and educate her. And um, the story goes that when Valentine received his death sentence, he wrote a letter to the jailer's daughter to be read to her, and he signed it, your Valentine. Um, and so, 
Uh, Valentine's Day as we know it today really is not a celebration of the Christian faith, but that's what it was created to be. We've just adopted the Roman pagan celebration of Lupercalia more than we have the celebration of this dear saint who died for his faith. Uh, in 1286, the emperor Diocletian divided the Roman Empire. Now, this is, this is a significant thing. Um, he divided the Roman Empire into east and west. So the western capital was Rome in Italy, and the eastern capital was Byzantium, uh, or what is now, who knows what the modern-day name of Byzantium would be. Huh? Istanbul. It, yeah, it became Constantinople, but Istanbul is, uh, Istanbul, Turkey is ancient Byzantium. Um, Diocletian divided the empire because it was too big for one man to manage, and so um, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. In 301, Armenia became the first country to make Christianity its state religion, Armenia. Do you know, who knows where, this is also a geography lesson, who knows where Armenia is? Give me a, give me a, a, rough, a rough estimate of where Mar Armenia, what countries might be close to Armenia? It's over there. It is over there. Um, not so much. Uh, yeah, so... Iran, Iraq, um, Armenia is up above um, Iran and Iraq. Um, Armenia in 301 became the first nation to make Christianity its state religion when its king was baptized and he officially Christianized his people. In 303, Diocletian, the guy who divided the empire, ordered a general persecution of all Christians. Diocletian in 303 AD made Christianity illegal and Christians were to be um, killed. Diocletian's goal was to stamp out Christianity. Uh, obviously, it did not work. Even with all the power of the empire behind him, Diocletian was angry because Christians would not call him our Lord. He demanded that he be worshipped as Jupiter. Now, who was Jupiter according to the Romans? Then, who? So, uh, what? Well, yeah, there were a lot of Roman gods. Okay, you got, he was the chief, he was the chief, he, is, who's his equivalent in Greek mythology? Zeus. That's right, Zeus and Jupiter are the same, one's Roman, one's Greek, uh, and so Diocletian demanded that he be worshipped as Jupiter, he believed he was Jupiter, personified, God personified. And the Christians, faithful Christians, would not do it. What is the Latin phrase for our Lord? Mm, who, any, who, what Latin students could tell me? What's the Latin phrase for our Lord? 
Huh? No. Dominus Noster? Is that it? Where is, what is it? Dominus Noster? Our Lord. That's what Diocletian commanded, that he be called. And because Christians would not submit to that, he became angry and decided he wanted to, to kill all Christians. That was in 303. Diocletian left the throne soon after that. Um, and then somebody else came to power. Um, he's a little-known Roman emperor um, named Constant, Constantius. But he only ruled Rome for about a year. And when he died, his son claimed the throne. Anybody know who the, the son of Constantius might be? Who? Constantine. So in 306, Constantine, we know him as Constantine the Great, claims the throne after the death of his father, who was the emperor of Rome. But Constantine had to beat his rival to have an uncontested claim to the throne. Now this is, this may seem like unimportant trivia, but it's actually quite important. And we'll see uh, in a few short years why this is so important. And so in 312, Constantine defeated his rival Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And this defeat of Maxentius made Constantine the uncontested emperor of Rome. Now, does anyone know what... Oh, I wish I'd have printed it out for you. Does anyone know uh, what, what something happened, according to legend, at the Battle of the Melvinian Bridge? The Milvian Bridge. Constantine saw something. Huh? Anyone but Ephraim. Anyone but Ephraim? But he knows. He know, I'm, I'm glad you know. That means he was paying attention in history. He saw a cross in the sky. And there was something that went with this cross. Who can tell me in Latin what words he saw? Because he saw the words in Latin. In hoc signo vinces. What's that mean? In this sign you shall conquer. He sees a cross with the words, in this sign you shall conquer. And he, he goes to battle at the Malvian Bridge and he defeats Maxentius and becomes the uncontested emperor of Rome. Not long after that, Constantine, it's purported that he had a vision of Christ in a dream and he saw two Greek letters. Does anyone know what two Greek letters he might have seen? No. Good guess, though. Good guess, though. Do you guys know? Man, I, I, I printed the symbol out. I, I've got the symbol here, but I forgot to make a copy of it for you. 
It's a common symbol. Some people wear it uh, as a charm around their neck. Well, it's kind of. Yeah, the Cairo. The Cairo. So Chi, the Greek letter Chi, it's the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. So Christos in Greek, it begins with the Chi, which is an X, and the Rho is a P. And so the Cairo is an X with a P put together. Look it up. Google it. You'll see it. This is what this is what Constantine saw in his dream when he saw Christ. And when he saw this in his dream, he realized that Christianity, this is what the legend is, that that this basically he embraced Christianity. Now, history tells us that Constantine did not actually make a profession of Christ and get baptized until just before his death. But it was at this time in 312 when he defeats Maxentius and has these visions and sees these things that he knows Christianity is the way he must go. And so as a result of Constantine's legendary experiences, he made a conversion to Christ and to Christianity. Now, how do we know that he did that? Well, because in 313, Constantine did something extremely important for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does anyone know what he did in 313? I'm looking at my history boys over here. What did he what did he do in 313? What Yes, he he published the Edict of Milan. So the Edict of Milan declared that persecution of Christians is illegal throughout the empire. Now remember the empire is divided between east and west, but when Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, he makes persecution of Christianity illegal in both the Eastern and the Western Roman empires. Now it is illegal to persecute a Christian. Not only that, but he makes Christianity the state religion of the empire. This ended Constantine with the, with the issuance of the Edict of Milan Constantine ended three centuries of persecution of Christians in Christianity. It's really uh, a major, it's a milestone in the history of the church and in the history of Christianity. Constantine also desired to reunite the whole Roman Empire under his rule, both east and west, and he did that. In 324, Constantine reunited the empire. He defeated the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, and he reunified Rome in 324. It was at this time that Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Byzantium, or what we know as modern-day Istanbul. And when he moved the capital to Byzantium, he changed the name of the city to? Actually not. 
He changed the city to the to no New Rome. New Rome, but New Rome didn't stick. People began to call it Constantinople very quickly after it became the capital. And all Constantinople means is the city of Constantine. And so it stopped being known as New Rome very quickly, and it in history is known as Constantinople, and remained Constantinople for over a thousand years after it became the capital of the Roman Empire. Constantine wanted to see Christianity spread. He wanted to better, under, under, he wanted to better establish the church and the doctrines of the church. And so in 325, he did another thing that was extremely important. Constantine called the First Council of Nicaea. In 325. And Constantine invited 300 bishops and church leaders to discuss the doctrinal disputes that existed in the church. And what Constantine wanted to do, as he is now making Christianity the state religion, he wanted a doctrine and a faith that he could send throughout the empire, and he wanted everyone to agree. Now, we talked about this. Remember, in t by 200, the canon of the New, New Testament was already identified. So in 200 AD, the canon of the New Testament is really not much different than what we have today. And what about the Old Testament? Was that in question? No, not at all. So the Old Testament scriptures were already firmly established. And we know that in around 250 BC, something significant happened with the Old Testament scriptures. Does anyone remember what, what the Jews did? They assembled 70 Hebrew scholars to create what? That was a clue for you. The Septuagint. So Septuagint is related to the 70 scholars. That's why it's called the Septuagint, because there were 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. So by the time Jesus is ministering on earth, the Septuagint's already been with us for well over, completed for well over a century before the birth of Christ. And many Jews at that time, because the world had been Hellenized, who remembers what Hellenizing the world meant? Not like, it's like hell. Not, that's not what it means. Huh? Yes, so the Hellenization of the world, who, who did that? Who started that? Huh? Yeah, Alexander the Great. So everywhere Alexander conquered, he put Greek leaders and he began to teach people the Greek language and educate them with a classical education of classical Greek things. And, and so that by the time Jesus is walking the earth, the, 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 the world speaks Greek. That is the language of commerce. And now the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek because... 
Jews who lived all over the known world didn't speak, many of them didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. And so the Jews recognized about 250 years before the birth of Christ that if their people are going to continue studying the scripture, they're going to have to translate it into Greek because everybody speaks Greek now. Everybody reads Greek and Hebrew was not as well known because the Jews were so scattered. Well, same thing's happening here. Remember, after the second Jewish revolt, the Jews were really dispersed and never returned to their land in, in, as a unified people and nation until 1948. Uh, so we're talking almost 2,000 years before the Jews came back into their land. And so here at Nicaea, August, I mean, Constantine's goal is to solidify the faith and create a unified faith that can be exported to the world. So at the Council of Nicaea, Constantine presided over these bishops and these leaders with the purpose of defining, this was central to the Council of Nicaea, was defining the nature of God uh, for all of Christianity, for all Christians, and eliminating confusion. What was the confusion about the nature of God? Anybody? Yeah. One was Jesus God. Yes. And the second was the Spirit. And they had a tremendous confusion and argument about filial. Did the Spirit come from God the Father? Or God the Father, filioque, and the Son, filioque. That was a huge argument about that. But that was critical to the Absolutely. So was Jesus the Son of God? Or was Jesus God? Or both. Those were things that they were working out at the Council of Nicaea. And so they wanted to, through this council, Constantine wanted to eliminate the confusion, the controversy, and the contention within the church and come to the unity of the faith. He wanted to do what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. He gave pastors, he gave apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry till we all come to the unity of the faith. God used Constantine and the Council of Nicaea to bring the church to a unity of the faith. Not completely, but you understand these very essential truths that are biblical truths that the scripture teaches. You had people in heresies, um, that were coming from all kinds of places, not just within the church, but without the church, trying to infiltrate the church. And Constantine used the Council of Nicaea to bring a unity to the faith. So at the Council of Nicaea, it overwhelmingly affirmed the deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ as defined the relationship between the Father and the Son as one substance. So when we, we say the Nicene Creed on Sunday mornings as part of our worship, and that phrase is in there, of one substance. It also, the creed also affirmed the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three co-equal and co-eternal persons of the Godhead. 
So the Holy Spirit was not just some force out there floating around. The Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead. And we, 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 we say this in the creed, to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. Well, all of that came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And so that is when the Nicene Creed was written, 325 A.D. So what we say every Sunday in confession, Christian, what do you believe? And we recite the Nicene Creed. We're declaring that document that was put together and developed in 325 to bring the Christian church together in its doctrine concerning the nature of God, the nature of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so out of this council, then, the Nicene Creed has come to be embraced to define the essential doctrines of the Christian church. And now we, we, uh, we know that about a hundred, more than a hundred, more than a century earlier, the Apostles' Creed was, was developed somewhere in there in the first century. It's, it's believed that the Apostles' Creed was developed in the first century. The Nicene Creed goes into much greater depth doctrinally to make sure, because when you recite the Apostles' Creed, you're saying you believe in the Father, you believe in the Son, in the Holy Spirit, but, but, but who are they? Well, the Nicene Creed tells you who they are. And so um, there are, for instance, I'll give you an example. There are more Mormons will cite the Apostles' Creed and not have any problem with it. Uh, I, I work with an organization that requires everyone that uh, works with them uh, in any official capacity, uh, if if you're going to wear their uniform, uh, you've got to adhere to the Apostles' Creed. And there are a lot of Mormons who will wear the uniform uh, and say, I believe that. But any practicing Mormon of good conscience would not be able to recite the Nicene Creed if they were honest uh, and true to their Mormon faith. So a Mormon could say the Apostles' Creed, and I'm not downing the Apostles' Creed. We recite it too. We, we recited it for several years until we've got it in memory. We, we, do it the, we recite the Apostles' Creed the first Sunday of every month. And uh, many of you can recite it by memory because you did it long enough. Not, not so with the Nicene Creed. It's a little bit longer. It's going to take you a little bit more time probably to memorize that one. Um, and that's because the Nicene Creed goes into much more doctrinal depth. All right, any questions about any of that? Any questions about Constantine, the council? Yes, Matthias, what's your question? God, yes. To God be the glory, you're right. Yes.
Yeah. 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 So that's a great that's a great point. Um, there are a lot of people, um, Christian and non-Christian, especially non-Christian. There are a lot of historians or a lot of people who say that what Constantine did was really bad. There are people who would. Um, And not all for the same reasons. So there's one aspect of this where people say Constantine was wrong in making the Christianity the state religion of the empire. Because that forced people to become Christians. And, 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 and in many ways, there were people that were forced to become Christians, because if you weren't a Christian, there were a lot of things you you missed out on or you couldn't do. And that was by design. Um, and so uh, in that respect, people say it was wrong of Constantine because he forced Christianity, even to the point of in, in using violence to make people convert to Christianity. Kind of what we see with Islam today um, in, in certain places. Um, prior to that, exactly. Basically, yeah, that's right. It, and nobody, nobody really talks about that. It's like, well, that's just the way the world was. It was all right to force paganistic beliefs on people, but, but when we now are enforcing Christianity, that's wrong. And, and I'm not saying that I, I, I necessarily, you know, would want to force people at the point of violence or death to confess their faith in Christ. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want that to be what's happening in our country today. Um, but I think when we uh, consider these things, we also fail to realize the great good that came out of this ending persecution Freedom of religion. Uh, freedom of religion came out of this. And so I think as human beings, we very often fail to realize how God works in history. We, because we live in such an instant society, we just want to see things instantly fixed. And it is my firm conviction that we would never have had freedom of religion as we understand it, as we embrace it and promote it and desire it, if Constantine would not have come to power and did what he did in ending persecution, embracing Christianity, and then making Christianity the, the religion of the empire. Because it is from Christianity, it is from the gospel that all freedom has come. Now, you know, we're too early in, in history right now. But if you would just do this, you can do this on your own time. You can go and you can look through history. And it is not by accident that the nations throughout history that have embraced freedom of religion, freedom in their governments, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, basic freedoms that we 
enjoy here in America, those came out of the gospel. Those came from the gospel. They came from nations, leaders embracing the gospel and stop, stopping being tyrants and beginning to rule the way Jesus told his disciples to rule. If you want to be great, become a servant. So what do we call our public, um, what do we call our elected officials? They are called public what? Now, they don't behave that way, do they? They behave like little tyrants, and they, they want to be tyrants. They, they want to be um, our Lord and our Lord's. But that's not who they are. And why are they not that? Because our Constitution tells us what they are. Our system of government tells us, no, those are your servants. You're their boss. A king's not their boss, not an earthly king. You're their boss. Where did that system come from? It, it, it ultimately came from the Gospels, where it came from. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it did. And, uh, and, and so as we get further in history, we'll kind of see where that, that flip happens. I was going to say the Edict of Milan explicitly um, makes Christ, the persecution of Christianity illegal, but he leaves the language yeah. purposely ambiguous and says, you are free to practice what we would understand as religious liberty. Yeah, so freedom of religion. Yeah. You know, other issues down the road, but big picture, Edict of Milan is pro Christianity as a Christian foundation provides for religious toleration. So, one of the things that happened at this time under Constantine when Christianity is made the, the religion of, of the state, the empire, and freedom of religion is basically now the law. In Rome, in the empire, you had Roman courts, and what developed, um, the Christians developed their own court system because the, the pagan courts were, were corrupt, and they, they, weren't, they were pagan. And so Christians began to develop their own, they had their own judges, their own courts, and so what happened as Christianity spread throughout the empire, um, Roman citizens preferred to go to the Christian courts, not the official Roman courts, because the Christian courts and the Christian judges were honest. They, they, you, couldn't, you couldn't bribe them. 
And so Constantine, recognizing, you know, we've got, we've got this split here, what Constantine does is he tells the Christian judges, you wear robes like the regular court judges do. This is, this is where Christian, this is where the whole robe system came out of. Constantine wanted the, the judges, well, who became the judges in the Christian courts? It was the bishops. It was the priests and the bishops. It was the church leaders who became the judges. Constantine said, you guys got to wear robes, you know, to represent the courts. And, and people wanted to go to the Christian courts because they were honest. And so this, the whole court system, our whole legal system and swearing on a Bible and the whole thing of telling the truth it all has its beginnings here in the Roman Empire, but specifically now with Constantine, Christian courts begin to, to flourish because people honored God and honored the scripture. And you had men of God who were the judges in these courts. And so why did Christian courts develop? Because Paul says, don't go to the pagan courts. Don't go to the world. Judge among yourselves. So in order to obey the scripture, they develop courts of their own so that people were going to the church, going to pastors, priests, bishops. They weren't going to the world's courts. And Constantine's like, everybody wanted to go to the Christian courts. So he's like, well, let's make you guys official and you become official judges. Well, out of that, this, now here's where another, some people say he made a big mistake because he melded the church and state when he put his stamp of, of these are official courts, official judges. Now they become married to the state uh, in, in a sense. And so separation of church and state, this is the cry we hear. But if, again, if you go through history, You'll, you'll see that what we call separation of what, what the what detractors call separation of church and state is never what they want it to be. There has always been throughout history, Christian history and the history of the West and the nations who embraced Christianity and the gospel. There's always been a relationship between um, the faith and the state, but not in, not in a, I don't think in a harmful way at all. So part of the reason we don't know this anymore is because they, don't, they literally do not teach this to our children in history, and they have not taught this to our children in history now for well over five decades, longer probably, longer. I, I would say probably post-World War II, they stopped teaching much of this not long after that. And so people think there has never been a relationship between the church and state because nobody reads the founding documents and nobody reads the pre-founding documents that the founding documents came from. Uh, and if you did read those, you would see there was a great relationship between church and state. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people think it's bad. I think it was God, and God used it. Just like he used Roman roads, 
to spread the gospel throughout the world. He used Constantine and the empire now to codify Christian doctrine and spread that doctrine throughout the world. Does, does man always get it right? Were Roman roads only used to spread the gospel? No. They were used to kill people, to destroy things, and, and you know, oppress people. But those same roads that were used for the oppression of people were used by God who had them built to set people free through the gospel. It's the same, same thing we have here with Constantine. And as Christians, we need to be able to discern those things so that we don't fall prey to the narrative that the world wants us to believe. Any other thoughts about that? That was a great question, great thought. Anything else there? Okay, let's, um, let's, uh, we'll, we'll come back to some of this stuff later uh, because this is the first Council of Nicaea. So there's other councils coming up and other things um, that are going to come out of this. So what, what Constantine may not have, he, I, and I don't think he did, I don't think anybody can, he, he didn't realize what ultimately was going to come out of this, but, but history because we can look back, we see how this thing evolved and grew and turned into a lot of really good things, but also some, some bad things and some hard things. But that's just the nature of his story. Also at this time, just so that you know, there's things happening in other parts of the world. Starting around 320... The year 320, the golden age of India began at this time under the Gupta dynasty. And this golden age lasted almost 200 years. During this time in India's history, astronomers came to understand and explain eclipses. The thing that just happened the other day. Wasn't that freaky? Did you guys... When it, it was just weird looking, it's like, man, it's like, it was just really weird. At noontime, it's like the shadowy daylight. I don't know, it was just, it was kind of strange. And you think, man, no wonder people would get freaked out by things like that, you know? Well, the Indians, around between 320 and 500, the Indians figured it out. They knew exactly what an eclipse was. They, uh, they also understood the revolution of the earth and the arrangement of the stars. Indian astronomers also accurately calculated the diameter of the moon back around the 4th century. And they developed a 12-month calendar and accurately pinpointed the position of the poles. You know all this flies in the face of the evolutionary model. This is why the evolutionists don't teach the technology of ancient man and the intellect of ancient man because if evolution is true, we're just pond scum that's getting smarter and smarter over billions of years. But surely, how did men do things like that back then when they didn't have the things that we have now? Well, maybe they had more than we think they had, 
And they might have even had more than that before the flood. The Indians excelled in iron making. I love cast iron. If you've ever been to my house, you know that I do. Uh, and it's said that in Delhi stands an iron pillar that's over 1,900 years old. And to this day, it remains untarnished. And scientists today cannot explain how the Indians made this iron pillar 1,900 years ago and it made of such fine iron. They don't know how they did it, but they did it. Indian mathematicians were the first to create Arabic numbers. The numbers we use today were created by Indian mathematicians. They were found in India as early as 256 B.C. The Indians also created the concept of zero as we know it. Indian mathematicians were almost 1,000 years ahead of the rest of the world in understanding decimals and algebra. That's the golden age of India under the Gupta dynasty beginning in around 320 the year 320. Well, let's go across the globe to the Americas. Between 350 and 900, there was a culture that rose to prominence in Central America. Anybody know what it might be? The Mayans. Yes, the Mayans. The Mayans of Central America began to flourish as a civilization at this time. Now, the Mayan people didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't begin at this time. The Mayans would have come across the Bering Straits from Asia. They were an Asiatic people, as all people would be. And they came across the Bering Straits. When might they have come across the Bering Straits, and how might they have come across the Bering Straits? Huh? Yes, they did walk. How did they walk? Did they walk on water? How was it connected? Ice. So let's go, we go back to our Bible. And if we just believe our Bible, and if we believe in a literal six-day creation, and we don't buy, I mean, do you realize the evolutionary model has been so debunked? The geological models have been so debunked, but the narrative and the establishment refuses to teach the truth because it would destroy everything they've built their religion on over the last 150 years. It would destroy everything. And so they just keep pretending like what's a lie is the truth. And this is, you know, this is what Karl Marx said. If you just tell people a lie long enough, they'll believe it's the truth. And do you know that the people who established our modern education system were communists? They were avowed, proud communists. And they, they knew this. They understood Marx's philosophy. They understood this. And they set out to do exactly what they've done, which is to indoctrinate generations of people to believe a lie and believing and thinking it's the truth and behaving as though it is. They literally set out, and they use these words, to demoralize our population. 
In other words, destroy our morals. And they've done a really, really good job of it because the church has laid down and let them just do it because we're more concerned about being nice than being true. Oh, I digress. I, let me get back to the Mayans here before I get in trouble. The Mayan people would have migrated from Asia across. Oh, that's what it was. That's how I got there. So the flood. So the world literally changed after the flood. Now, I love Dr. Larry is doing his. Uh, you, you don't know who Dr. Larry is, but we had Dr. Larry. How many times did he come? He did his 13 week seminar here like three times, I think. And Dr. Larry is a creation scientist. He's doing it right now at Memorial Baptist, I think once a month on Friday nights. But, um, the, and you can get this from Answers in Genesis, uh, Kent Ham and the guys at uh, Answers in Genesis in Kentucky. They have great resources that are free for you. You can download them, you can print them. Um, and so the theory is, and I believe it's true, uh, the theory is, that I don't have time to tell you what the theory is. So you're going to need to remind me next week to tell you what the theory is. Or you can just go look up the... Um, um, no, no, it's the uh, canopy. The water, canopy of water that surrounded the earth. That would have been, you know, 30 feet or so thick or more. Enough to filter out all the gamma rays, all the harmful rays. Why did people live so long? Well, they lived so long because they were living under multiple atmospheres of pressure. And they were not getting all the harmful radiation from the sun because the canopy of water that surrounded the earth filtered all that out. It also created a perfect temperature and environment on the earth. It's why now, did you see there's, I, there, they just, I just saw the headline. Guess what they've just discovered under Antarctica. They've already, they discovered palm trees and all that long time ago. But now they've discovered under Antarctica where rivers have cut, where rivers flowed at one time. How did they discover that? Because the ice is melting. Oh, well, how did rivers flow at Antarctica if there hasn't always been ice there? Well, because at one time there wasn't ice there. When did the ice develop? It developed after the flood when that canopy was pierced by God, however he chose to do it, an asteroid or his finger. When he broke up the fountains of the deep and he pierced the canopy and the water flooded down from the top and flooded up from the bottom. And when the water subsided and there's no more canopy, now we have, we've got poles, ice poles, North Pole, South Pole, the Arctic, the Antarctic. That's the remnants of what was left from the Ice Age. And so during the Ice Age, people migrated. There was a place near the, the equator where there was no ice, but in other places, ice created land bridges from Asia to Australia, from Asia to North America. There were land bridges created after the continents drifted. This is how 
the people from Asia migrated to the Americas down to Central America, and they are known as the Mayans. And so Mayan culture began to flourish about 350 A.D., like the Indians, but completely disconnected from them. Guess what the Mayans also developed in their system of mathematics? They developed the concept of zero. You think it's accidental that the Indians and the Mayans both developed zero? Is it possible that the concept of zero existed somewhere before in a common group of people, in a common population, perhaps? Just throwing it out there. They were also master astronomers. They accurately calculated the number of days in the year. They accurately predicted eclipses, just like the Indians did, and they figured out the orbit of Venus. No one had done that before the Mayans. The Romans, the Greeks, the Indians, no one did that. Unlike other Native American cultures, the Mayans had a written language. They built elaborate cities and were extremely advanced in many, many ways. All of this, and then suddenly they just disappeared. Maybe. Could be aliens. Could be Bigfoot. Could be Sasquatch. You never know. It, it, and no one really knows. No one knows why they disappeared. Uh, lots of reasons of speculation, but no one knows for sure. But they were there, and then they just disappeared, leaving these fantastic cities and structures that they built. It was quite a civilization. Um, so all of that's taking place around the same time Christianity is spreading throughout the Roman Empire now legally. And it's embraced by the empire. No longer are Christians called atheists because they don't worship the pagan gods and only believe in one God. Now, the belief in the one true God is the belief that the empire is promoting. Now we have a codified doctrinal statement that we are now taking to the ends of the earth to proclaim and spread the gospel. And while that's happening in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, these other things are happening too because it's all his story because the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, even the people and the places and the things. All right. Any questions? That ends our lesson tonight.